All right, would you join me in prayer? Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for kids. Thank you that they get to go to class where people are going to teach them and care for them. Would you bless them as they go and learn about you? Those of us here are going to turn our attention now to your word. And so we ask that the teaching ministry of your Holy Spirit would unfold in such a way that the word, which is alive, becomes that much more alive to each of us in a personal way. Thank you for the word of Song of Solomon. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've been hearing this all week long, that uh, people are excited about our sermon series, but they're going like, I have never been in a church that preached through Song of Solomon. Uh, Me too. (laughs) And so the way that we're going to start a lot of these, not every week, because it'll get old, but a lot of weeks, is I'll kind of give you a heads up about um, the rating today. So today's rating is between like PG and PG-13. There will be some weeks where it is more R-rated, because it's Song of Solomon, because it's love poetry. Uh, I just offer that as kind of use your discretion, especially if you have kids. Kids are always welcome to be in worship. I love having kids in worship. But as parents who are responsible for the car rides home and the conversations therein, just want to give you a heads up about that. I also want to do that uh, as a means to say that for many, the subject of intimacy and sexuality is extremely powerful. That's true for all of us. But it's also fraught with all kind of pain and all kind of difficulty. And so I just offer that as we start, that there will be parts of this sermon series where you kind of go like, oof, that hits close to home. Uh, The scriptures do that to us, but especially around the area of intimacy and sexuality, it's just hard. And so we just need to say that from the get-go and say it's all right for us to move forward through this as a community. Uh, I hope and I actually believe, especially through the preaching of the word, and the way that the word can be brought together in groups, that there can be healing uh, for anybody through the scriptures, no matter what you've experienced. And so I offer that uh, at the beginning of our time together. I also want to offer a little glimpse into the land of Narnia, so all you C.S. Lewis fans, get ready. Uh, the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia is The Last Battle. It's a powerful book, and it begins with uh, a relationship between a talking ape named Shift and a talking donkey named Puzzle. Everybody with me? Donkeys, apes, they talk, it's Narnia. Okay, good. Listen to this. Shift had one friend and neighbor who was a donkey called Puzzle. At least they both said that they were friends. But from the way that things went on, you might have thought that Puzzle was more like Shift's servant than his friend. He did all the work. When they went together to the river, Shift filled the big bottles with water, but it was Puzzle who carried them back. When they wanted anything from the towns further down the river, it was Puzzle who went down with empty bags on his back and came back with them full and heavy. Puzzle never complained because he knew that Shift was far cleverer than himself, and he thought it was very kind of Shift to be friends with him at all. And if ever Puzzle did try to argue about anything, Shift would say, Now, Puzzle, I understand what needs to be done better than you. You know you're not clever, Puzzle. And Puzzle always said, no, 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 Shift, you're, you're, you're right, it's quite true, I'm not clever. And then he would sigh and do whatever Shift told him to do. Every one of us has at some point in our life fallen into one end of the spectrum of this relationship. We give away our will and our power to make other people happy, that's one of my tendencies. Or we notice that someone is giving us an inch, and so what do we do? We take a mile. We take at least a mile. At various times in each of our lives, we're either the ape shift or we're the donkey puzzle. And that's, honestly, it's part of being human. 
It's part of being broken. It's part of the sinful world that we live in. And so I mention all that at the outset to say there are pieces of Song of Solomon that are going to land in each of our lives in a particular way because we all face the fracturing of relationship. We face it in real ways. And so for the next eight weeks, we're going to be looking at Song of Solomon. It's also called Song of Songs. And the top level thing I'd like us to know about it this morning is that it is about relationships. Song of Solomon is about relationships. It's part of the biblical genre of wisdom literature. And so it falls into the same category as Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And if you're a linear thinker, you're sitting there going, I don't like those books. (laughs) Because they're hard to understand. They're not thematic. They're kind of nebulous. If you're an A plus B plus C equals D person, Song of Solomon might drive you nuts. But there's reason to hang with it because it's beautifully written, because it speaks of things that are personal and passionate and powerful, because it's about relationships. And we all know this. Every one of us exists in a network of relationships, a web of relationships between other people. And those of us who follow Jesus Christ admit and profess and grab a hold of the fact that we exist in relationship to God. And part of our mission is to help invite others into that understanding graciously and winsomely that we do exist in a relationship with God. Song of Solomon is going to help us discover more of God's desires for a relationship. So our big idea for today is going to be really simple. It goes like this. Ours is an upstream journey toward freedom. We have an upstream journey toward freedom. And we'll talk more about that as we get into the text. Underneath that thesis... We're going to look at three different headings, which are outlined in your bulletin, our premises for the study today, kind of the rules of the road, a statement of identity that comes from the woman in the text, and then a practical application. So if you were here last week, uh, we watched the video from our senior pastor, Richard, and I would say, too, if you want to grab the podcast and listen to the audio or watch the video of that sermon again, I would highly recommend it, because Richard kind of laid out like a course curriculum for the study of Song of Solomon. Here at Bethany, we, we, our teaching pastors all work together to craft sermons together and to think through these things, and then together we go to each of our congregations. And so Richard kind of set the table for all of our churches to kind of study this text. And I really hope you'll go and listen to it if you haven't had a chance to do that yet. And so I'm just going to unpack a little bit of what Richard talked about and then kind of give just a few more guiding rules for the morning. At the top of the heap, is a two-way street, two sort of sided conversation about relationships, contract and covenant. Now, if you've read Tim Keller's The Meaning of Marriage, you're going to go, that sounds familiar. Yes, I'm ripping off most of this from The Meaning of Marriage because the talk that I give at weddings is a complete ripoff of The Meaning of Marriage. And I tell people that because you always need to steal from the best. And here's what Keller would say. Most of our relationships are consumer relationships based on a contract. So contractual consumer relationships, kind of interchangeable. This is normal and necessary in a free market economy. Like, that's how stuff works. You give me what I want at the cost that I find acceptable in a timely manner, or else I'm going to take my business elsewhere. If you drive up to your favorite latte stand every week and you pay $4.25 for that skinny vanilla latte, but then one day you roll up and it's now $5.25, God forbid, or the milk doesn't taste quite right, you're going to take your business elsewhere. You might give them another chance, but chances are that relationship is cut off. Now, that's normal. That's part of living life in, in an economic system like what we have. But there's a problem when we transfer the parameters of that relationship to relationships of people. See, your relationship with your latte provider probably isn't 
that personal. It might be. You might know your barista. You might pray for them. I hope you do. But the chief problem when we transfer contract relationships into our hearts is that you can never rest when you're in a contract. Because why? The contract might get yanked out from under you. You can never rest. You can never let your guard down. You can never become vulnerable because you're always having to prove yourself. This is the game that we play when we're dating, and it's exhausting. (laughs) A covenant relationship is different. W.H. Auden, the poet, once wrote, the covenants foster healthy use of time and will. They are always more interesting than romance, no matter how passionate. Covenants help focus our efforts. They give us reason to give our energy into a relationship where we don't have to prove ourselves anymore. You don't have to keep doing the dance of contract relationship. You can rest. You can let your guard down. Those of you who are married can agree with me when you say that ain't easy. But that's how a covenant is supposed to work. And it's the fascination, the endless freedom that comes within a covenant that allows us to keep exploring them, to keep the vitality in them, and that is absent in a contract. Covenant relationship is the pathway we must follow upstream to flourishing. And covenant relationship exists outside of marriage. Marriage is the primary means which the Bible talks about covenant, but we make covenants with one another as a church. We do so when we enter into membership in this particular church. We do so when we uh, have a child come and be dedicated. That's a covenant that we make together. And so if you've been around a little while, you've probably taken part in a covenant. And it's good to take part in covenants. Contract versus covenant, intimacy within safety, and a setting that produces flourishing. These are all themes that are going to come up over and over again throughout the Song of Solomon. And so in addition to kind of that two-part relationship thing, now we're going to look at a triangle, a three-part relationship between some of the characters in Song of Solomon. Okay, so if you're a linear thinker, I'm going to give you some characters, but I'm not going to give you a plot. That's going to be hard. (laughs) There is no plot because the Song of Solomon is a collection of love poems. Right? It's not a, a fully writ story. It's not, he dates her, and then she dumps him, and then there's flowers, and he stands out in front of her house with a boombox over his head. It doesn't go like that. It's awesome when it goes like that, but it doesn't go like that in Song of Solomon. The three-part relationship, and Richard touched on, this, touched on this last week, is different than what many of us have heard, if we've heard any biblical teaching about Song of Solomon, Most of the time, Song of Solomon is taught as a two-part relationship. There's a man, there's a woman. They romance each other, they woo one another, and we'll see where it goes. Our premise is that there's actually a three-part relationship. There's the woman, who's the hero of the story, and then there's two different men vying for her affections. One is the king, and we can basically say the king's the bad guy, and then there's the shepherd. There's the shepherd. Now, we'll get to specific examples of how this plays out in a moment, But for now, let's just paint a really quick picture of how each of these folks comes into the story. Nonlinear story. The woman is the hero. Part of what we'll discover as we study Song of Solomon, and this is a theme throughout all of Scripture, is that God calls women and men to live in equality and to treat each other with equality. That is clear in the text, and we will get into that more and more. And that is a theme that unites all of our Scriptures. Our heroine, this woman, is strong, she's well-spoken, her heart is aligned with the things of God. That's the gist of why she's a hero. The king is kind of like a bad guy, but he's like a sniveling, wimpy, like toothless bad guy. He's a bad guy because he wants a contract relationship. He wants to get what he wants from the woman at the least possible cost to himself. That's a contract. 
And we don't really know if they're married. Again, this is one of the questions you have to ask when you're looking at poetry. It's not linear, and so we can't say with certainty the woman's married to the king, the woman's married to the shepherd. At different times in the text, it's going to look like she's married over here, or she's in the harem over here, or this is happening. I think this is actually a helpful area where it's not super clear, because then we can take Song of Solomon and say, this doesn't just apply to marriage. This applies to those nebulous relationships that we all step into from time to time. This applies to you whether you are married, whether you are single, whether you are dating, whether you are divorced. There are principles from the text that are going to apply to each of our lives. And I think that lack of foundational clarity around some of these relationships is actually a helpful thing. The shepherd is the final figure. And what we know about him is that he is the woman's true love. Everything good in the Song of Solomon comes in their interactions, in their dialogues with one another. He's the Christ figure throughout the poem. He loves the woman ravishingly and unconditionally. Ravishingly and unconditionally. Those are words that come up in the study of this text that we need in our lives, and our world needs to see us apply. And the reason for that is that perfect love drives out fear. And we see that several times just in this text today. Okay, that's a lot to think about. Not every week is going to be like that. Again, I want to mention groups, because I mentioned this at the beginning. Groups are a great way to look at this text, to look at all the texts we're going to have in Song of Solomon, and really digest it, really get your arms around it. We're going to be providing study questions for groups, so if you'd like to have access to those, let me know. We want to make sure that groups especially can be a place where this kind of thing is safely and helpfully talked about. Now let's look specifically at the text. If you brought your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to turn to Song of Solomon chapter 1. a Bible, there's a couple on the back table over there that you're welcome to have. Each week, we're just going to cover like a little chunk of each chapter. We're going to have a chapter on the agenda, but really we're going to try to get at sort of the main themes within it. And I want to encourage you, read the whole chapter on your own. Yes, it's poetry. Yes, it can be kind of hard to follow. But just to immerse ourselves in the text week in and week out is really, really valuable. Um, if you're like me, you may get a lot of value out of listening to the text. So if you have a Bible app on your phone, it probably has an option to play a reading of that text. That can be really helpful. Uh, in my Bible, it doesn't break out the voices, but in your Bible, it might. What I mean by that is there are several different voices that come up in this text alone. So just to highlight this for us as we start today, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 8 alone, we have four different speaking parts. Think of it as a play. So the first speaking part is the woman, and she speaks in verses 2, 3, and the first part of 4. Then, if you have the same pronoun I do, it says, we will exult and rejoice in you. That's like a Greek chorus. That's like the people in the background in the Shakespeare plays that affirm what's going on. Then in verse 5 through 7, that's the woman speaking again. It's kind of like a dialogue. And then at the very end in verse 8, we hear the voice of the shepherd. So I mentioned that breakout because there are a lot of resources out there that can kind of helpfully frame that. I'll do my best every week to kind of help frame that for us as we study it. But isn't that interesting that within the first eight verses, we hear four different exchanges. And if you're not looking for it, it's really hard to see where it is. And that's another reason why Song of Solomon can be somewhat confusing. Let's talk about why the woman is the hero. I made that claim earlier, and I want to try to support that claim. Why would we want to say that about the woman? She's not perfect. She struggles. She says confusing things. So why sort of tap her on the shoulder and say, you're the hero of the story? Two main reasons that I'll cover very briefly today. First, she gives voice to the joy of love. 
and how good love is. And secondly, she tears down the stereotypes of her day. She gives voice to the joy of love, and she tears down stereotypes. So first, the voice of joy. So much of Song of Solomon is about the joy of love, of being loved, of being in relationship. And we all know this feeling. When you're excited about something, when you are loving a new book, or you're watching a new TV series, or you just found this great new recipe, what do you do? You talk about it. You tell people about it, because there's this joy over finding something that speaks to your heart. In relationship, we do the same thing. Verses 2 through 4 are where the woman is really bringing this into fullness. I'm going to read verses 2 through 4 and stop at the part where the chorus comes in. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is perfume poured out. Therefore, the maidens love you. Draw me after you. Let us make haste. The king has brought me into his chambers." What a joyful picture. What a rich and powerful portrait of why love is so good. This is one of the ways that we can find healing and hope. When we talk about sex being powerful, when we talk about intimacy being used poorly in our culture, which it is all the time, and frankly, it hasn't been used very well in Christian culture either. I grew up in the South. I did not grow up reading Song of Solomon. I did not grow up with an understanding of the beauty of sex as God intended it. I was taught, stay away from sex. Sex is dirty. Don't touch it. It took a long time for me to kind of learn something different. And I think the scriptures are going to be our pathway into finding the vision of sex that God intends. The woman articulates it here in a really powerful way, and she's excited about her love. It's powerful. Verses 2 through 3 are interesting as well because she mentions three things that if you have an Old Testament background are really powerful uh, images of blessing. She mentions wine and oil and perfume. Those are all things that throughout the Old Testament point toward the blessing of God. Those would have been markers of pay attention to this. This is something that God is doing. And in the case of the text today, she says this, essentially, the stuff that I can buy, the perfume, the wine, these other things, They're good things, but they are not as good as what I have with my shepherd. And interestingly enough, the shepherd's got a a name that isn't named in here. Maybe you caught this. The the woman says this, your name is perfume poured out, right? So that's, uh, that's a metaphor. Your name is perfume poured out. In other words, the very name of her love, the shepherd, is one that is built around the image of sacrifice. Isn't that interesting? Sacrifice has already come up in chapter 1 of Song of Solomon. And if we know Jesus Christ, we know that his sacrificial love ravishes us and changes us and transforms us and brings us joy. And it's here in the text. His name is known as a name that is sacrificial in the way that he loves. Pouring out perfume, just dumping it out. Yeah, sure, that might look wasteful. It might be this, it might be that. But in the context of the passage, it celebrates why their love is so beautiful because it involves sacrifice. Now, let's try to apply this for just a moment. If you're young or old, if you're married or single, this begs the question, what am I trying to align my desires for love with? In other words, if our hearts are like a compass, what is the north? What is the direction that our hearts are pointing toward? If your chief desire, if you're in a romantic relationship, if you're married, if you're not married, if your number one desire is to be safe, to have security in that relationship, That is valuable, but you are in for some serious disappointment because that person will never be able to perfectly protect you. If your chief desire in a relationship like the king is to exercise power and get what you want, you're in for a lot of pain. 
a lot of pain. But if you hope and long for and aim your heart at the goal of giving up your life for the sake of somebody else in the safety and context of a covenant relationship, then you become more of who God made you to be and the person you love gets to become that too. This is a learned ethic. This is not something that any of us do by default. We do not naturally err on the side of giving ourselves away for the sake of others. This can happen in marriage. This can happen in friendship. I've told you guys before about a friend of mine named Colin who, at a very broken point in my life, drove down through traffic to meet with me and to affirm my calling and to tell me that I was valuable. And that is self-sacrificial love because he didn't have to go do that. Nobody told him to do that. But he did that because of our friendship. There are ways to see this kind of self-sacrificial love beyond marriage, but the single best expression of it is Jesus Christ. So, where do we see contracts in this passage? If we're talking about the goodness of covenantal love, there's got to be a foil to it. There's got to be something that represents what we're not supposed to go and do. To get to a contract in this passage, you have to consider our second heading, which is that the woman tears down the stereotypes of the day. We all have a contractual relationship with the wider culture around us. We all have a relationship with our neighbors, with our places of work, where we say, I'm going to do certain things, and then I'm going to receive certain things, right? You show up for work, 8 to 5, 8 to 6, whatever your hours are, and the contract stipulates that you will be paid a certain amount. That is a contract that you live into outside of a normal human relationship. In the context of our passage today, there's a contract in play in this woman's culture that she totally violates. Listen to verses 5 and 6. This is the woman speaking again. I am black and beautiful. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has gazed on me. What's she talking about? The standard of beauty in the ancient Near East was not having dark skin, either because of your ethnicity or because you were tan. The standard of beauty in the ancient Near East for women was pure, white, unblemished, milky skin. In other words, Seattleites would have been gorgeous to them. (laughs) So, this woman is either of a different race, which is possible, she's different than the prevailing culture around her, or her skin is dark, as she alludes to, because she works in the fields. She'd been outside. She is a day laborer. She works in such a way that is different than the people around her. She's defying the contract of the people around her who say this type of skin is valuable, this type of ethnicity is valuable. She declares her integrity in the middle of it and says, I'm black and I'm beautiful. What are you going to do about it? This is who she is. This is, yes, a declaration of a personal characteristic, but this is also a declaration of how God values races equally. And God cares for people regardless of the color of our skin. She's declaring that in this moment in a powerful way, and she's looking basically at the contract that would have been around her that would have said, fair skin, you got to look like this, you can't be a laborer in the fields, and she's going, yeah, right. I know who I am because my heart is aligned with the things of God. That is what her declaration is here. She is able to declare this and declare the goodness that is within her because the affections of her heart are rightly aligned. This is that great phrase from 1 John. Once again, perfect love drives out fear. Because she knows that her heart is aligned with the things of God and the love that is given to her and exchanged in between them in her relationship with the shepherd, she's free. 
She doesn't play by the rules of those contracts anymore. They do not have a place in her life. She swims upstream toward freedom. So what can we do with this? What, what does that mean in each of our lives? I've been reading a book with a friend of mine that I would recommend just kind of as a study companion to this series. It's called You Are What You Love. It's by a guy that teaches philosophy at Calvin College named James K.A. Smith. Anybody heard of this book? It was on Christianity Today's uh, Books of the Year last year. And I started to read through it, and I realized this has a lot to do with Song of Solomon. It's a book about discipleship, so listen to this. To be human is to have a heart. You can't not love. Isn't that a great line? You can't not love. You're going to choose to love. The question isn't whether you you will love something as ultimate. The question is what you will love as ultimate. And you are what you love. What does he mean when he says that? You are what you love. Smith explains that human beings are animated and oriented around some vision of the good life. So close your eyes for just a minute. Do a little bit of in-the-moment reflection. When you were growing up, what did your mom and dad or your parents or whoever was in charge of your life tell you was a good life? Was it financial security? Was it having a home with acres? Was it being free of disease, being beautiful? What's the vision of the good life that you remember being taught? Okay, you can open your eyes. Smith makes the case that whatever vision of the good life, whatever version we have in our heads, that trickles down to our hearts and it forms a compass. And whether we know it or not, it aligns us with some goal, some end, some purpose, whether we are consciously aware of it or whether it's subtle. And that's what we want. That's what we desire. That's what we hope for in love. True north in your heart and in my heart is the vision of the good life that we want to pursue. What happens when we can't get that vision? It's rough. It's restless. Listen to this quote that Smith offers from Augustine, St. Augustine. A body by its weight tends to move toward its proper place. He's talking about physical objects. The weight's movement is not necessarily downward, but to its appropriate position. Fire tends to move upwards. A stone moves downwards. They are acted on by their respective weights. They seek their own place. Oil poured underwater is drawn up to the surface on top of the water. Water poured on top of oil sinks below the oil. They are acted on by their respective densities. They seek their own place. Things which are not in their intended position are restless. Once they are in their ordered position, they are at rest. Smith goes on to explain that our loves, the things that our hearts orient around, are like gravity. They carry us to the direction to which they are weighted. If our loves are absorbed with material things or security or false love or contracts, then our love is a weight that drags us downward to inferior things. But when our loves are animated by the renewing fire of the Holy Spirit, then our weight goes upward. What are your loves? What kind of love draws you to pursue something or to pursue someone? How have you tried to achieve that vision of the good life? What does that cost you? Are we sensing stability as we pursue those visions from our hearts, or are we sensing that restlessness that Smith wrote about? Where and when are we living like puzzle and shift? We're just in that relationship that's all give and nothing in return. 
If you're thinking of a relationship like that, I invite you to consider that as part of the confession that we'll share together before we come to the Lord's table. Are we entering into our relationships with humility and a desire to see others flourish or with a desire to just get what we want at any cost? Are we we resting in our relationships which are built around a covenant or are we fighting like we're in a contract all the time? Jesus Christ made a covenant of love with us which he embodied here at his table. And I'm going to invite Nick and Ken to join me up here. This table is an enactment of a covenant. It's a place where we can love and be loved safely. When the people of God come to the table of God, they don't come wondering if we're accepted, wondering if we got everything right. We come knowing that we're safe here. And that the orienting loves of our heart can be matched only by the matchless love of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to pray and ask God to set apart this time and I invite you to join me in prayer and join me in confession. Jesus, this is your table. We offer this time to you. We pray that in the use of these very simple elements that you would be glorified. We ask that you would fill us with your spirit in a special way. We confess that we fall very short, so short, of your desires for us, of your glory. And so hear us now as we offer in the silence just a few moments of confession. God, where our hearts are broken, bring your healing. Where our world is broken, bring your shalom. May we come now to the table as people forgiven, and shaped by your shalom. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. And on... And on the night that our Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed, he took the, bl- the bread and he blessed said, this bread is my body broken for you. Take it, eat it in remembrance of me. As Jesus sat at table with his friends, he also poured out a cup. And he said to them, this cup is the new covenant, the new agreement, the new freedom between God and people. It's shed in my blood, it, shed as, it is shed for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul later reminds us that as often as we eat this bread and drink from this cup, we proclaim the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ until he comes again. And so I invite disciples of Jesus Christ to, t- to come to the table of Christ. We have elements available for those of you that have any concerns about allergies. The gluten-free elements are in the smaller basket. These men and women are here to love and to serve you and to offer you the bread and say, this is Christ's body broken for you. You're welcome to take that bread when you're ready. And then we offer the cup as well. This cup is Christ's blood shed for you. Take the cup back to your seat. Please hold on to it. We will have a moment in a little while where we take the cup together. This is the meal of God, the table of God for the people of God. When you're prayerfully ready to do so, come forward by the center aisles and then head back to your seats by the sides. Let us worship God at his table.